from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Skartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is Tuesday, the 9th of August, 2016. On this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop, music, and killer robots. So, buckle up and uh, let's get started. A little bit better than dope is, a brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge, I persevere, but find out, do me a favor. favor. Let me in here, and we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the bass with a taste of light. So, let me explain. Hey, everybody, calm down. It's been a long time since I've done a podcast, and the reason for that is because my feed died. Now, for the last whatever, I've been doing this podcast using some... I've been editing my own XML feed. I won't bore you with the details. The point is, it was all working very smoothly until one time, the last time I tried to upload a syncast, everything just died. I couldn't get the feed to work, so I had to sign up with some service and that's what we're doing now so it's taken me a while to get everything organized but the reason I had to finally get the finger out as the Brits say is that I got an interview with Sarah Schulman and she's amazing I love her so much she's awesome she's a writer and an academic and and just an incredible person so uh, we got that interview here for this show and I'll come back soon with a discussion about the end of the world and Donald Trump and all the craziness going on and Black Lives Matter and a million other topics so Hang on for that. That's coming soon. But for now, enjoy my interview with Sarah Schulman. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the end is near. But don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention. You got to listen to hear. Hello and welcome uh, to the didactic interview. Um, I'm here with Sarah Schulman. Uh, she is an activist, an author, an academic, and an awesome American. Uh, she's written 10 novels, six nonfiction books, and five plays. Her career has reached through dozens of areas from stagecraft to federal drug policy, to Israel-Palestine, to restorative justice, to oral history, to the rights of LGBTQ people. In the 1990s, she was a founding member of the radical direct action group The Lesbian Avengers, and her 1990 novel People in Trouble was stolen and ripped off by Jonathan Larson for his play Rent, although with some disturbing changes made regarding the focus of the story. We'll talk about that. Uh, More recently, she helped create the documentary film United in Anger, a history of ACT UP, and she has become a leading voice for the BDS movement, Boycott, Divide, and sanctions to end the Israeli occupation of Palestinian lands and pressure Israel to comply with international law. Unfortunately, Ms. Shulman is often pigeonholed and her work is often ghettoized as niche or special interest. As a result, she does not receive the kind of critical acclaim and media attention that her remarkable work deserves. Still, she has been honored with a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Fulbright Scholarship, and among many other honors, the Stonewall Award for the Improving the Lives of Gays and Lesbians in the United States. She is also a personal hero of mine, so I am both honored and anxious to have her on the show. Ms. Shulman's <laughs> latest novel is The Cosmopolitans, based in part on La Cousine Bette by 19th century French novelist Honoré de Balzac. The novel is also informed by James Baldwin's 1962 novel In Another Country, along with the rise of marketing and television culture, life in pre-gentrified New York, 
and the dysfunctional nature of American families. Longtime listeners to this podcast will know that I've spent years writing Wikipedia articles about Honoré de Balzac, including a featured article about La Cousine Bette. So when I learned that one of my favorite authors had written a retelling of a novel by one of my other favorite authors, I was beside myself with delight. This caused a surfeit of impossibly high expectations, but I am happy to report that the novel met all of these and then some. So we're going to talk about all that stuff and some more. And uh, Sarah Schulman, thank you, and welcome to the Didactic Syncast. Thank you so much. Um, first of all, I'd like to say happy birthday. I understand uh, a week or two yes, ago I you had a birthday. Yes, I just turned 58. Excellent. Yes. And, and how did you celebrate your birthday? I was teaching at, at the uh, Lambda Queer Emerging Writers Program in L.A., and uh, they the kids gave me a cake and roses, and then a friend took me to dinner. Oh, so fantastic. It really it's so nice when students celebrate that sort of thing. I'm a high school English teacher, so I know a little something about oh. relationships with the students. Um, right. Unfortunately, yeah, my birthday precious. falls on exams week, so I, they never really pay attention. <laughs> really They're so preoccupied. But, um, so uh, starting with the Cosmopolitans and then talking about the industry a little bit, uh, what was the hardest thing about writing this book for you? Well, it started out as a play. Mm, okay. Um, the actress, <clears throat> Roberta Maxwell, who is one of the great ladies of the American stage, asked me to write a play for her. And she had a relationship with the director, Des Mackinoff, who at that time was the artistic director of the La Jolla Playhouse. And he had just directed a film version of Cousin Bet with Jessica Lange. And I had always wanted to write something about Cousin Bet. And Roberta felt like the perfect actress. So we went and pitched the story, and he gave me a commission for the play. And then I developed a play. Um, when it was time to do it at La Jolla, Roberta had gotten a Broadway show. So a wonderful, amazing actress um, replaced her, Diane Venora, who's one of an, another incredible actor. And I spent a number of weeks with Diane developing the piece at the La Jolla Playhouse. But I could never get a production uh, in New York. And, you know, as one of the literary managers explained to me, she said, the men who run the theater don't understand these kinds of relationships. Because the, the story, my story, is not about powerful people. And it's a, it was a play with no white male protagonist. It's about um, people who are outside in a way that reveals the inside. And for that reason, I think the, the, the men who are artistic directors of American theaters do not connect to those kind of characters. And I could not get a product, production. And so I decided to turn it into a book. And this is something that I've done a number of times when I write something that can't get seen, is not allowed to be seen in its first incarnation of put it into another form because I, the story needs to be told. Mm -hmm. So then I rewrote it into a novel and no one would publish it. No one. I mean, for three and a half years, uh, not only would no one publish it, but 50% of the people who agreed to read it never responded. Mm -hmm. And most of the people who rejected it, I really could tell from their letter had never read it. Mm -hmm. So it was just something, that's what happened. And, you know, I, I 
it's strange because I've been writing for a long time and my experience is that my readers really care about the books that I write, mm-hmm. that there's a very dynamic relationship there. But every book is very hard to get published, no matter how exciting, you know, the one before was. How much and no matter record. how well the one before did. Right. How much of an audience you have. For me, the next book is yeah. always difficult. Right. Yes. Yeah. No. I just. I. It's. I, I shouldn't be surprised because I understand the way the industry works, and I've read interviews with you where you describe the difficulties you've had getting published. But it just seems to me that at a certain point, an industry ought to recognize that there is a market there for what you're producing, and a smart publisher would want to pick up on that. It's not about that. It's about their own personal discomfort. Right. It's really not about money and sales. Um, it's because. I'm the kind of writer where every book I do is completely different. Mm -hmm. And that level of innovation makes certain kinds of people uncomfortable. So, you know, like, I'll write a book, it'll be impossible to get it published. Finally, it'll get published. Then people will really appreciate it, and it will do very well. And then I'll write another book, and they'll say, can't you write one like the one before? Right. But they rejected the one before. So anyway, I couldn't get any, no one would publish it. And then finally, Amy Shoulder and Nino Testa from Feminist Press solicited it. They had heard me talking about it. I think it had, at that point, it had been three and a half years of rejection. And I sent it to them, and they acquired it. And then Amy left the Feminist Press, and Jennifer Baumgartner became the executive director there. And they did an incredible job of publishing this book. I mean, the Feminist Press is a tiny little press that comes out of the City University of New York. It's not even a corporate press. They have nothing. But they made a beautiful book. They did everything that needed to be done. They really cooperated with me and built a beautiful relationship with me and ended up selling 5,000 copies in the first three months, which would be something that any corporate press would be happy with. Yeah. So, you know, it's just the same situation with people. So anyway, my, what I've been hearing from readers, well, first of all, the book got no bad reviews. Mm-hmm. And what I've been hearing from readers is that we really enjoy reading. <laughs> that's that's what I've been the kind of feedback I've been getting. Oh sure. And it is that kind of novel, you know. I mean, I've written a lot of different kinds of novels: experimental novels, historical novels, midlist literary, detective novels. I wrote a science fiction book. Everything, but this is one of those, you know, uh, page turners. Right, and, and, it's and people are really enjoying it. Yeah, so that, yeah. That's what. That's the story of the book. And it's interesting that. that... It, I, I mean, it doesn't surprise me knowing other, you know, having read other things you've written, but, you know, I think if you'd said to some people, hey, here's a book that's sort of based on this 19th century French realist, uh, they might feel it's bound to have some distance for them, but it's definitely not. It feels so accessible and open and, and welcoming. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, in the Slate interview, you said that you were drawn to Kuzinbet uh, at the University of Chicago in the 70s because that you glommed onto a sentence because of something a professor said. Uh, I wonder if you might tell us which sentence that was. Oh, I took, I had a really great French teacher there named Francoise Meltzer. And I think I took five classes with her, if I recall. And, um, but at that time, this is 
the mid-70s, you were not allowed to discuss homosexuality in the classroom. Mm -hmm. It was really considered rude. And um, nobody ever brought it up. I mean, I remember I took a class once. We were talking about Colette. And I raised my hand. I don't know why. And I said, wasn't Colette a lesbian? And the teacher said, if Colette was a lesbian or not, is as important as if she's right-handed or left-handed. And I'm sitting there, like future lesbian writer, and I'm thinking, I don't think that's true. But I didn't have the language to to respond to that. So you know, they were just they would just press it down. But as we were reading Cousin Bet with Professor Meltzer, people were trying to talk about her and understand her. And at one point, she said, "Well, maybe she's a lesbian." And I I don't know. It just no one had ever said that in the classroom to me before about a character. And of course, Balzac has a lot of queer characters. Mm-hmm. You know, in Perigorio, there's the, the the male voices whispering at night as they're going up the stairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's quite a bit of queerness in his books. He did have a girlfriend, but she lived in the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So he they didn't see each other yeah. very much. And he may have had some boyfriends. Um, I mean, the, the Rob biography suggests that he may have had some liaisons with gentlemen as well. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, his, he's just a very queer writer. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so that that made me pay more attention that, you know, there's this, there's this, um, uh, you know, archetype in literature of the bitter, mean spinster, right, who wants to ruin everybody's fun. It's what Sarah Ahmed calls the feminist killjoy, the person who comes into the room and tells the truth and thereby ruins the party. And this is, you know, and so on one hand, there's been a, a... an idea of Cousin Bet looking at her through that lens. But when Professor Meltzer said maybe she's a lesbian, then I thought, well, maybe there's something else here. And I don't, you know, and I don't want to give anything away about my book. She's not a lesbian in my book, but there's a, she's queer mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. She puts herself in the queer world, and she has almost no connections to straight men, except, um, you know, that that she sees that they are overpraised. But her relationship with a woman is the relationship that transforms her. So there's so I, I used it, but not in a not in a, a very overt way, but I think in an important way. Right. Um yeah, Hugh Ryan in the LA Review of Books said that your fiction sometimes has a quote didactic edge. Uh, this made me smile because I'm accused of having didactic edges so often that I called my podcast the Didactic Syncast. How do you see the role of didacticism in your work? What place do you think it has in art? Um, I think that if Hugh Ryan had given an example, then we could have discussed it. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's an easy, easy thing to say when somebody is up representing a minority point of view, mm-hmm. that by simply asserting that their point of view is legitimate, that they're being didactic. And of course, I've been accused of that my entire life. <laughs> but people who represent majority points of view are not considered to be even political. They're right. considered to be neutral, objective, and value-free, which of course they're not. Right. So although I'm incredibly grateful to him for that beautiful article and the fact that he spent a year reading all 17 books and, and trying to synthesize them is something that I'm very grateful for. I do wish he had given an example mm. because I would have liked to discuss it further. Sure. 
Um, in the Slate interview, um, you mentioned that your intelligence often causes people to feel threatened, and then it makes people read you as angry. Um, and it's, I've been thinking a lot about anger lately. In fact, I wrote a book about mindfulness recently, and I have a piece in there about anger, how it connects to politics. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Audre Lorde's essay, The Uses of Anger. And, um, you know, as the saying goes, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. I think anger is a natural response to a lot of what we see in the world. But then, of course, Maya Angelou also described fury as, quote, my natural enemy. It clotted my blood and clogged my pores and literally blinded me. So I guess my question is, you know, do you how, how do you think anger can be useful? And also for an activist who's been involved in various struggles for many, many years, how must a committed conscious individual deal with anger? I don't think I'm angry, but I think that other people are angry at me. And they project that so that they construct me as angry. I mean, that's been my experience. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a new book coming out in October. It's called Conflict is Not Abuse. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of my magnum opus, life's work theory of everything book. And it addresses this um, in the intimate realm as well as in the geopolitical realm. That difference is very often misconstrued as threat. And especially for two groups of people, people who are functioning within a supremacy system and people who've been traumatized. And it, it, it may seem unusual to say that these two groups of people are responding in similar ways because, of course, they're having opposite experiences of being alive. But I think that, you know, people who are uh, imbued with supremacy cannot tolerate difference or opposition. They, they, it cracks their sense of themselves and they experience it as a horrible attack and terribly threatening. This is why we see the police killing black men, for example, when they're walking down the street. You know, it functions on all kinds of levels. But people who've been traumatized similarly fear difference because sometimes it takes so much for them to just keep it together that any... Um, situation where they would have to question themselves or rethink how they understand themselves is simply too threatening. And so in both cases, I think when someone is presented with a person like myself who articulates ideas that haven't been heard before and has a point of view that is usually repressed, they consider that to be threatening. And then they project that I'm angry but if they could welcome difference, I don't think they would feel that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like I'm jumping around a little bit, and I apologize for that. Uh, That's okay. With regard to the length of time it took for you to get published, I, you know, I, I, I hear from some of my students, and I, I see in some places in the world that there seems to be this myth that, you know, for many people, usually those of us outside the LGBTQ community, you know, many people often seem to think that there's this fortress of material support and comfort and promotion of LGBTQ artists nurturing and promoting each other. Um, could you say a little bit about that myth and, and where you think it comes from? Well, it depends. You know, there's not really no such thing as LGBT. Right. I mean, there was a time when every gay person was profoundly oppressed across the board. Everybody lived in illegality. Now we're in a much more complex moment where we have what uh, Jasbir Poir calls homo-nationalism, where certain sectors of the LGBT have been assimilated into the power structure. 
So if you're looking at white males of a certain class, if you're looking at citizens, if you're looking at people who are married and in, you know, uh, traditional family structures or people who are HIV negative, then you're looking at people who have been increasingly invited into the power structure and who increasingly have access to the apparatus of punishment. We're even seeing even now trans people are being invited into the U.S. military, Mm -hmm. which is one of the most abusive structures in the world. On the other hand, if you are not a citizen, if you're HIV positive, if you're a poor queer person, if you're a person of color, then you are subjected to all kinds of silences, pressures, and oppressions. So it really depends on who people are. You know, it's interesting, if you read the new Black Lives Matter just issued their their platform, and it's a brilliant platform. I mean, it's so intelligent and complex and truthful, incredibly well-researched. It, it's a beautiful document. And in fact, Jewish Voice for Peace just endorsed it, and I'm on their advisory board. But they start out by talking about black queer people. Black women, black queer people, and black trans people. And that's in the forefront of their their platform. So, you know, it really depends on on who you are. If you're a white male, gay man of a certain class, there is an enormous amount of support for you. There's all kinds of special relationships to power. There's all kinds of inflations available. Um, it's, It's phenomenal, actually. To observe, but if you're not from that, those systems are not available at all. And there's a high ick factor for gatekeepers around lesbian point of view. They really makes them feel very uncomfortable because they have to question their own sense of themselves as, as objective. And regardless of whether there's an audience for it or whether they can make money, their own discomfort sort of trumps those other factors. Mm-hmm. Do you see the future of American society or global perspectives on these issues being better served by an attempt to sort of force open that mainstream and demand access or to say, you know what, let us build our own sort of separate structures over here to nurture ourselves? Well, I think that, you know, we should have access to the mainstream, of course. Mm -hmm. I mean, mainstream American literature is so stagnant, so boring. Mm -hmm. And I recently read this interview with Jonathan Franzen about why he doesn't have any black characters. I don't know if you saw that. No. Basically, it's because he doesn't know any black people, and he thinks that that's fine. (laughs) And, I mean, he has a concept of of a world, or he wants to create literature that's for a white world. That that cannot be the emblematic American literature. It's absurd. Do you think some of that... Just just as American culture is stagnating... American letters are in the same place, and they need we need a revolution in American literature in terms of what's available to people and what they're encouraged to read. Do you think that some of his hesitation, and I don't want to speak for Jonathan Franzen, I don't have a particular fanboy attitude toward him, um, you know, I know that some white writers are nervous, for instance, of writing characters of color because they feel like there's such potential for them to write simplistic characters of that type and so forth and so on. And obviously the goal for them ought to be to push themselves to write fully three-dimensional characters. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, having written characters that are sort of 
uh, from different backgrounds from yourself, I wonder if you can say anything about the, the anxiety that might exist for some writers about trying to do that in a way that is fair and just and sensible. You know, that's, there's a name for that syndrome. It's called white frailty. Right. It's when white people conceptualize themselves as somehow endangered because of their anxieties about their whiteness. Mm-hmm. I mean, then you have to learn how to do it. I mean, I've been, look, I've had all different kinds of characters since I started. My first book in 1984, I think I, I had, an, I think it was the first Asian lesbian character in American literature was in that book. And I've been working with black protagonists for decades, and I've made a lot of mistakes. Now, I wrote a, a historical novel in 1998 called Shimmer that had two black protagonists. And I, I love that book. I'm really, I think that's a book that I wish people would go back to. But there's one tiny trope in it where I now realize that I gave white consciousness to a black character. And, it was, and actually, I was told about that at the time by a black writer. And when that happened, I, I resolved that that was something I didn't ever want to do again. So in the 18 years between Shimmer and the Cosmopolitans, I have done a lot of work. You know, it's, it's not impossible to learn how other people understand the world, right. especially if they make their expression available. So if you're interested in representing other voices, listen to them. Mm-hmm. You know, one of, the, one of the questions in representation of Israel-Palestine Politics is that Jewish voices are constantly being used to substitute for Palestinian voices. Mm -hmm. And so in my new book, Conflict is Not Abuse, I have a very broad representation of Palestinian voices. You know, it's not that hard to adjust to recognize that there are other people in the world. So, you know, having anxiety about that is not a reason not to do it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit about um, the structure of the Cosmopolitans. Could you start by saying okay. um, a little bit about how you, I mean, I suppose now that I know that it started out as a play, it makes sense that it would have a structure more resemblant of that of a play. It's very unusual for a novel to have an intermission, for instance. So what, 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 what's your intention there? Well, um, it, you know, it's not, it actually is structured like a play. Because, I mean, also, but the opening sequence, of the first chapter, it tells you why Bette does not like the movie. I was going to ask you to read that part. Would you be able to just read that for us on page two? There was a magic lantern show and then a Nickelodeon. The newsreels rolled in with the war, and she attended regularly, searching systematically for signs of her brother in France until he came home unscathed with no stories, having only learned to smoke. The banality of it all turned her away from movies and made her a fan of the stage. Real life in real time, whether a carnival sideshow at the Ashtabula County Fair or a carousel on Broadway. Act one, intermission, act two. Change is inevitable. What looks like nothing can become a cataclysm and then, of course, resolve. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, I'm an experimental film fan, and I, and I co-founded the Mixed Queer Experimental Film Festival 30 years ago. But I'm also a theater person, and I understand the difference between film and theater. And this is, in a way, a book about theater, because it's a book about looking outside your window at real people in real time living in front of each other together. 
So it's, the book starts out as a, a rejection of movies and an embrace of the theater. And it's structured in a very sound two-act structure. But the first act is very different than act two. And the, and the first act does not predict act two. When I go to a play, and I go to theater all the time, because I'm a playwright, I watch act two, and then I always say to my friend, what do you, well, we watch act one, and then we say, what do you think is going to happen in act two? And, you know, sometimes you don't need to even stay for act two because <laughs> it's, the thing is so poorly constructed that you know exactly what's going to happen. But if you have no idea what's going to happen, then it's a great two-act structure. And that's, that's just how the book is, is constructed. And it, you know, that opening sequence where she's looking out her window, it reminded me a lot of, you know, sort of Balzac's perspective on how he wrote and went out into life and tried to get into the highest reaches of society. And of course, he had been well uh, versed with the lowest reaches of society and trying to mm-hmm. display that entire panorama. And it, it seems to me like there's an attempt to do that same sort of thing here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite influenced by Balzac. I mean, I I love Cousin Bet. I love Harlot High and Low. It's another one that I'm really interested in. Um, and uh, let's see. And the Magic Skin was kind of crazy. And mm-hmm. Paragorio. So those would be my favorites. Mm-hmm. But but what I really like is the concept of the human comedy itself. Mm-hmm. And the idea that um, we're all in this world together. And that a minor character in one book can have their own novel. And that he wrote it all with a quill pen and drank 16 cups of coffee a day and died of of caffeine poisoning. I mean, I relate to this. I really understand because I'm one of those people who writes a lot, not as much as him. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I was talking to Samuel Delaney because he writes, he publishes like a 600-page book every two years. You know, I mean, he writes a lot more than I do. But those of us who, who produce at such a high quantity, we're, we're special minds. It's a very strange impulse, and it's hard to, for people to understand. Like, people ask me all the time, like, do you ever sleep? And what they don't realize is I'm not, the reason I've written 18 books is not because I don't sleep. It's not because I'm so disciplined. I'm not that disciplined. It's because it's natural to me. It just comes out that way. You know, and, and it's a, that's a very hard thing to explain or convey. It's probably neurological as far as I, at least that's how I understand it. I understand it in biological terms. So I was at the Village Vanguard to hear Jerry Allen, who was a beautiful jazz pianist. She's an improv pa- pianist. And I was watching her play, and she's just, you know, on the keyboard with her hands. There's no music. And I thought, that's what I do, really. I just sit down at the keyboard and there's something happens that's physical. And then instead of producing music, it produces a visual object, which is a page of with words on it. And it's just a very, I'm a natural, and I just don't know how to explain that beyond that. Do you also go running into publishers' uh, houses with edits and demand that they stop the press and re- create a new version of your book, as Balzac did? No, he was lucky that he had the opportunity to do that. It's always so hard for me to get a publisher yeah. but by the, at that point and just, you know, probably have two more books written already. Right. Um, in terms of the settings, uh, you know, Balzac's well known for, uh, you know, Zola called him the father of naturalism. And uh, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the similarities and differences between the Paris that he was writing about and the New York City that you're writing about. 
Well, this is um, a very important time in New York City life because it's after World War II. So there's a big social transformation, and there's the promise of the American dream abounds. And yet poor Earl and Bette, they really are out there on their own because it's before the social movement. So it's before women's liberation and gay liberation and black power. So even though they're facing these systemic problems, there's no public discussion of the experiences that they're having. And so it's a private consciousness response. So you have a society that is in a state of public progress and movement forward, but certain people are left out and it's not being, and it's not articulated. So perhaps that would be the parallels. What do you see? Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I, I think that the, the the stratification is obviously very significant. I was reminded of the boarding house in Paragorio when we were getting descriptions of, of their home. Um, and it also occurs to me that the, the, the emphasis on buildings, um, there, I'm trying to find the spot in my notes where uh, Earl... I don't remember if he hugs or kisses the building. He hugs his, yeah. he hugs his building. That seemed like a very profound moment for me. You wrote the building was his boyfriend. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, um, because you know there's an intimacy when you when you're a city when you're a real city person. There's an intimacy with the construction of the city itself. It's physical construction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like hugging trees. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, on page 33, it says Bet was not sentimental and Earl was. I wonder if you might speak a little bit about sentimentality, what it means to you. Um, Nelson Algren was once asked about it, and he said that it's, uh, I'm not going to remember the quote, and I'm afraid of butchering it, but he said it was something along the lines of, um, you know, being able to look honestly at things without over-romanticizing them or something to that effect. Oh, that's interesting. I think it's, you know, Earl still believes that he can have the life that he wants and Earl and that wants the life that she has. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference. And she, you know, I mean, her life is small, but she, before the calamity, which we're not going to give away what it is, she was in a, in a state of, um, I guess you could call her an underachiever. She was a very smart woman. So because of social constraints, was relegated to a subordinate position. And she was fine with that. She really didn't care. But when she needed power, she had to be transformed. And that's one of the things that the book is about. So it was reality that made her have to rise to her own ability. Earl already wants more than he'll ever be allowed to have because of the his experience as a black gay man in, in the 1950s. And there's certain, there's certain things that are just never going to be available to him. And, and it's terrible for him. It just it destroys him, especially as an actor, the fact that there are no roles for black people. And, you know, it's still, I mean, there's increasingly roles for black actors, but there's still not roles for black actors. And just like there's still not roles for women, really, good roles. But um, in his time, you know, his only option was to understudy Emperor Jones and be a spear carrier. So um, that's why he ends up having to work in the meatpacking district, which was, there were a lot of black men who worked in meatpacking at the time. But it's also a time in New York when there were working class jobs in Manhattan, 
you know, and, and that, therefore you could be a working class person mm-hmm. and live in, in the inner city. Um, at the bottom of, I wonder if you might read the last paragraph on page 59 about um, Earl's connection to the stage and, and notions of tragedy. 59, okay. Earl stared at the stage. Where was he? He trembled. His soul had fallen to the floor, rolled down the aisle and leapt from the balcony, crashing into the lives of the people below, causing tragedy, ruining everything, ruining everyone else's night, ruining Paul Robeson's big moment. That was how Earl felt. What did he do about how he felt? The same thing he always did, diminished silently, lost life. If ever, anywhere, there were a group of guys all walking in Earl's specific shoes, trying to do something about the pain, well, the news had not reached him. The loss was always, always, always his own personal singular queer old loss, and it was always the taking away of connection, keeping it ever impossible to simply have. Thank you. Uh, I'm reminded of Vonnegut's statement in Timequake about why writing matters. Uh, he says something to the effect of, there are many people who need desperately to hear this message that you are not alone, that I feel the same way you feel about many things, and even though most people seem not to. Um, I wonder if you might say something about how this sensation that Earl is feeling here has remained stagnant since the time in which the novel takes place, and how it has changed or transformed with the rise of the internet, social media, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I can tell you that every book I write, every single book, I hear from people that it's the first time that they're seeing some experience being articulated that they felt and didn't have words for. So I know that my audience are people who, that my core audience are the peop- are people who've been ignored or abandoned in that way and feel alone in that way. As a teacher, it's very interesting. I read, like I said, I was just at the Lambda Emerging Queer Writers Retreat in LA and I had extraordinary students. I mean, remarkable. And my class was extremely diverse. Um, I had two Mexican women. There were four black women. One was trans. I had four trans people, three trans. I mean, it was just, so mixed and a white gay man who was 58 years old who handled the whole thing very well being the only one of his kind in the group um and it was just a remarkable group but when we went around the first day and everyone talked about their book project every single book was about something that has not no one has published on before i mean every story was a story that hasn't been told it was just remarkable how much repetition there is in publishing how certain People's realities are told over and over ad nauseum, and other people's this are not never are never approached. And that that has always been what I've been writing about. You know, whether it's been about homophobia in the family, whether it's been about HIV criminalization, which is one of the topics of my new book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what wh- whoever I there seems to be a large number of people who have never had their stories told, and Earl is one of them. Uh, talk a little bit about the challenge of creating a character like Bette, who comes, for some readers at least, with a mountain of baggage and preconceived notions, especially considering the animalistic descriptions that Balzac uses for her. I mean, she's not a, at all a sympathetic character in, in his book. Um, right. How do you make her your own? 
Well, because I understand her. You know, for for him, she's an object. But for me, she's a subject. So, and it's, in a way, this goes back to our original discussion, how any person or character who asks a dominant cultural person to re-examine themselves is then cast as a villain or dangerous or bad or someone to be destroyed. But actually, those are the most important people in the culture because they, they're the people that keep the culture moving forward. You know, it's interesting if you look at how much resistance there is, for example, to the phrase Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And how so many people don't want to say Black Lives Matter. They want to say All Lives Matter because they don't want to think about Black Lives. And so something that is helpful to the culture and progressive and enriches us is then treated as though it's somehow an assault or a threat. And that's true for everything that expands us. So a character like Bette is a person with a great deal of knowledge about the society. And that society would benefit from that knowledge, but it means that people would have to question how they understand themselves. Mm-hmm. So by simply just, by just illuminating her in that way, as I've done with all my characters, she becomes multidimensional and she stops being a thing and she starts being a person. You know, she, Earl is a profoundly oppressed person and the only person who cares is Beth. So she's the one that he hurts. And that is a human construction that I have seen all my life where people who have been really damaged and really wounded take out their rage on the only person who cares. Unfortunately for Earl, in Beth's situation, she's alone. She doesn't have a support system to reinforce her, to say to her, oh, he's just blaming you or, um, you know, he's just acting out. All she has is him, so she can't just go along with it. And that's what he's expecting. She has to transform it. And, and that, that need makes the stakes so high. And now we're in a world where there are no white male protagonists. There's only the black gay man and the white spinster middle-aged woman. And so that's the universe that we're in. And so the kinds of people who are pathologized by the white male protagonists are no longer pathologized. They are the authorities. And this is what changes it. Shimmer does a similar thing. Shimmer is one of my novels that I wish people would go back to but it's set actually in the same building as the Cosmopolitans, but in 1947, 10 years earlier. And here you have the emblematic American dream story. The war is over and the economy's booming, and we're all going to go out there and get the American dream. Only in my version, the protagonists are a gay Jewish girl and a black man. And they want to get the American dream too. But how does the emblematic American dream story look when your protagonists are the people who are excluded from it. And so, so this is something that I've been working with for decades now, trying to retell the American story through different experiences and how much everything tra- transforms. Um, later in the book, uh, Hortense is thinking, discovery itself is freedom. I wonder if you might talk a little <laughs> bit about that. Do you believe that to be the case? I don't, no, because you have responsibility to other people. You know, one of the writers I admire the most is Sarah Ahmed, who's probably one of the smartest people in the world. I think her work is incredible. And she has a, a book called, um, oh, it has the word happiness in the title. Anyway, something about happiness. But 
It's about how there's a concept of happiness that can only be accomplished really at other people's expense. We have a definition and expectation of happiness that requires being comfortable all the time. Uh, 2010, the promise, the promise of happiness. The promise of happiness. And being comfortable all the time only means that you can only exist in that state if you're repressing other human beings and their contradictions and experiences. So that this concept of happiness is inherently dependent on hurting other people. I mean, it's a brilliant book, and it's absolutely true. You know, and so, so this is, um, uh, you know, with that understanding, you have to come to a new definition of what is a reasonable life. And I think a reasonable life is one in which we embrace being uncomfortable. Because being uncomfortable means that other people are being hurt. Um, could you talk a little bit about the literary allusions in the book? There's a lot of them. You mentioned, of course, Paul Robeson. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned Edna St. Vincent Millay. At one point, Hortense is reading Ophelia. Right. Um, there's so many. Let's see. Yes, uh, Edith Wharton. Well, the, not, the title itself, The Cosmopolitan, is because I wanted it to sound like a Henry James novel. Right. So I was looking for a title that could have been written by Henry James, and I chose that. I mean, it's a lot of it has to do with the era, you know, of the 50s, which we, we falsely think of as simultaneously kitchen sink realism, whatever that means, and abstract expressionism. And because, you know, the, it's interesting because McCarthyism persecuted realists. Uh, unlike, for example, the Nazis who persecuted people who were abstract. But the American fascists hated realists. And so, in a sense, it helped expressionism emerge in the late 50s. Um, it's, I mean, that's, you know, that's my analysis. I mean, that may sound like an un, uh, unusual thing to say, because ex abstract expressionism is seen as, in a sense, revolutionary, and it is. But it was also tolerable, because the powers that be couldn't understand it. You know, and so this is this is what's one of the things that's so interesting about the late fifties, and of course there's an emergence of a significant avant-garde that's about to change the world, and uh, but it's existing under the surface, while we're getting, um, you know, Arthur Miller and, and this type of work. So, uh, you know, I was just intrigued by all of that, and of course that's the work that I grew up around as well. You know, it's it's part of was part of my education since I was born in the year that this book takes place, nineteen fifty eight. Could you say something about Shakespeare in particular? You know, Othello looms large in Earl's life as as an actor and, and um the presence of Ophelia obviously is something that, that uh resonates in certain places. I wonder if you can say anything about his ability to reach beyond his own world and try to write about people from other backgrounds? Well, I mean, I can tell you a little bit about where, where the role of Hamlet in this book. Um, when we were, it was interesting because when I was doing the play in La Jolla, I was working with Diane Venora. But Diane Venora is the last woman to play Hamlet in New York. Joe Papp famously directed her at the Public Theater. But in the early part of the century, women played Hamlet all the time. It was a standard role for women. And the greatest female actresses played Hamlet. Sarah Bernhardt, Eva Le Gallien, I mean, there's so many. 
And I even wrote a play called The Lady Hamlet um, about, uh, basically about Sarah Bernhardt and Eva Legallian battling to see which one was going to play Hamlet on Broadway, but I don't use their names. Anyway, so when I was working on The Lady Hamlet and doing readings with actresses like Kate Burton, whose father famously played Hamlet, and many great actresses did readings of that play, I realized that actresses do not grow up fantasizing playing Hamlet. They're unprepared for it. But men all fantasize playing Hamlet. Every actor, regardless of race, has an idea of how he would play Hamlet. It's part of being an actor. And mm-hmm. so I gave that to Earl. That like every other actor I've ever known, he imagined it. He imagined himself playing that role. And and so then, of course, Othello becomes the black role, even though it was played in blackface. Mm-hmm. It normally was played in blackface by white actors. But it became a role that an act, someone who is a true actor could imagine himself playing. And so these two clouds of Hamlet and Othello, both of whom would be denied to Earl because of his race, hang over the entire book. Um, on page 133, he's talking about, Earl is talking about his, his relationships with Leon and, and others, and he says, uh, sort of an internal monologue, it's my fucking standards, he thought, they're killing me, forget about them and stop living in heartbreak. Can you talk a little, it, it feels like that sentiment is one that reaches out beyond just interpersonal relationships and talks about, it, it resonates with me in, in terms of how I, you know, the difference between, in, in the Buddhist conception, the, the, the split between expectation or desire and reality, and that's the cause of all suffering. But of course, in order to be a political activist, I think we have to have that tension and that anger and that dissatisfaction between what we want and what we have. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the significance of that moment. Or well, that. I think that there's, it addresses two entirely different experiences that have been conflated into one. The first is just the normal human thing that we all have things we want that we can't have, and you have to adjust to that on some level. But then when, when, what happens when you actually are, have the, the ability and the talent to do something where you're excluded from it because you're in the wrong social category? Having to accept that is an entirely different process. Mm-hmm. So if someone is, should be playing Hamlet, but they, he can't because he's black or she can't because she's a woman, that's an entirely different experience than not being able to play Hamlet because not everyone gets to play Hamlet. Right. So it's understanding your experiences politically and then deciding how to adjust to it if you can. But there's a tragedy there when it's, the exclusion is rooted in injustice. And you watch other people be elevated or overpraised simply because of their demographics. That's quite different than just the normal human adjustment. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what he's trying to grapple with, is, is understanding the difference between the two. And there's really nothing he can do about it. I mean, it's 1958. You know, the, the civil rights movement will explode in five years. And then large numbers of people will begin this, this mass effort that we're still involved in today towards simple justice. But in 1958, he's alone in it, and it's tragic. 
elsewhere in the book, uh, Bed and Earl are talking uh, with Hortense about money and truth and beauty, and um, it makes me wonder, if do you think that Balzac's cousin Bet had truth in her life? What kinds of truth did she have? Well, she was an outcast because of illegitimate social values. If she could have been herself and not be dependent on the men in her family and not be scorned or socially cast aside because of who she was, she would have had a completely different kind of life. And those experiences were unjust experiences. And unjust experiences have emotional consequences in people's lives. It's the same thing in Baldwin. I mean, one of the reasons, one of my comments at the end of the book about another country is that, um, you know, Baldwin's women are not fully human characters. And it doesn't make the book less important. Mm -hmm. You know, he was articulating something about race and sexuality and the obstructions to representing it. And that is a painful, the flaws of the book are painful and they're revealing and they're truthful flaws. But as a female reader, it's frustrating. It's frustrating to see someone struggle so hard to humanize one kind of person and have absolutely no interest in humanizing another kind of person. Mm. So I'm also responding to that. Sure. So at one point, Frank argues that it's the actor's job purely to bring the words to life. And he's talking with (laughs) Earl about the kinds of roles that we're willing to accept or not. I wonder, as a playwright, how you feel about the relationship between the words on the page and the actor's job of bringing them to life. Um, Does this reflect any of your own view? Are there moments when you've struggled with this as a playwright? Well, I've only worked with great actors, so I've only had really good experiences. I've only been enriched by working with actors. But what Frank is talking about is it's kind of like when a wonderful actress like Viola Davis, who I saw in King Headley by... um, the great, great black playwright who passed away, who wrote the piano lesson, August, August Wilson. Wilson, right? And she won a Tony Award for that incredible performance. Mm-hmm. And you watch an incredible actress like Viola Davis, and then she's in a movie like The Help, right? And then you listen, you you look at all of the interviews that she does, where she explains why it's okay to be in a movie like that, mm-hmm. and you know. Black actors are constantly having to justify the roles that they're they're being asked to play because there are no roles. I mean, now she has power and she creates her own roles. But, uh, you know, I have a friend, Roz Coleman, who's an incredible actor, who's a Yale-trained actress, who's phenomenal. And at one point she told me that the, the one line she said most in her career was, they shot my husband. <laughs> You know, or like I once worked with a Korean actress who everything she does is she only plays people who run, um, you know, stores, who run 24-hour stores. Mm-hmm. That's every role that she plays. Mm-hmm. So, you know, or Latina actresses who are constantly playing drug addicts or or if you look at the something like The Wire, right. where you're seeing black actors who went to Yale and whose parents are deans and attorneys and they're playing street addicts mm-hmm. you know i mean this is so i mean if you want to be an actor that's what you're going to have to do and frank has justified it to himself and and earl can't he can't he wants to but he can't mm-hmm. at one point um 
there's a discussion of quivering. Uh, there's a bit of um, universal female code for becoming vulnerable and therefore open to being rescued. Uh, I wonder if, if you could talk a little bit about the level of theatrical artifice that exists for so many people in day-to-day life. Do you think that's required? Is it valuable? Or do you think that it's better and or possible to live in sort of complete, honest reality? Who knows? I mean, I'm one of these people. I have no control over my own behavior. <laughs> you know, I can only be myself. Um, and, you know, it's it's been detrimental to me in my life that it, that, that is the case. And I've tried to change it, but I, I just don't know how. You know, I spent years trying to get work in television. And you think like someone like, like me would be great for television because I write so fast. And I have so much um, dexterity with characters and I can write in all different kinds of forms but I can't get through the interview so I go out and have the, what they call meetings and people say you are so real and that's so refreshing and what they mean is I hate you and I don't want to work with you <laughs> because no matter how hard I try to be someone other than who I am I just don't know how to do it so that's to my detriment <laughs> although I did recently act in a movie and I think I was pretty good, but I was pretty close to the character. The movie is called Jason and Shirley. I don't know if you've heard about this. I have not. I'm, I'm directed, put it on my list. It was directed by Stephen Winter, and it ran for a week at the Museum of Modern Art, uh, which was very exciting for all of us. And I play the, the filmmaker Shirley Clark, who was an experimental fil- filmmaker in 1966, who made an important experimental film called Portrait of Jason which is the first film of a black gay man. She shot it in the Chelsea Hotel. And uh, um, it's a very frustrating film. It's a fascinating film. Um, but she, she's not as aware of her own racism and homophobia as she needed to be to make the film, even though in 1966 she was ahead of her time. Mm-hmm. And so now Stephen Winter, who is a black gay director, has remade the film with Jack Waters playing Jason. And Jack Waters is a very beloved kind of underground icon of downtown culture. And he and I do this film together. And the original shoot was a 12-hour shoot in the Chelsea Hotel. So Stephen Winter reenacted the 12-hour shoot, and Jack and I did a 12-hour improv, reenacting the original filming, and then Stephen edited it down to 90 minutes, which is the length of the original Portrait of Jason. So I did act, and I was able to do it well, I think, but probably because it was improv. I don't think I could actually learn lines and say that somebody else wrote and say them. In an interview with The Guardian, you said that you want, quote, an interactive relationship with the reader. Uh, how satisfied mm-hmm. are you with the frequency of that interaction? Um, how, how, how well do you think that that interactivity lives up to your hopes and expectations? My readers are very responsive to me. I have very intimate relationships with the readers. I mean, I've been on tour for more than 30 years, and I see the same people come over and over as I go through different cities. People email me or message me multiple times a day. Um, people are always talking to me about my books. I mean, it's funny. When you go to see, sometimes I go to see like a famous straight person give a reading and the place is packed, but the audience doesn't really care. <laughs> I don't even know why they're there. But I know that when I give readings, people really care, and they really argue with me, and they're invested. It's a very precious experience. In my new book, Conflict is Not Abuse, 
I say in the, it's coming out October 1, I say in the intro that, um, that I know that this is not a book that is right, that there's a lot of things in the book that are wrong or I make a lot of mistakes, and that I, I, I ask people to read the book the way they would go see a play. You don't say, the play is right. <laughs> Instead you say the play reveals human contradictions and flaws, even that of the playwright herself. And I'm asking them to read this nonfiction book in the same way. To say, yes, I agree with this. No, I reject that. Let me think about this. And in that way, produce new knowledge, you know, in the, in the reader themselves. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've gotten to the point where I'm able, I think, now to do that, even in nonfiction. Yeah. Could you say anything about the experience of getting the nonfiction books published vis-a-vis the experience getting it's similar. Similar. I mean, this book, it's funny, like, conflict is not of use. Again, nobody would publish it. You know, I went through everything. The university presses wouldn't do it. The commercial presses wouldn't do it. The small presses. Finally, I went to um, a queer press in Vancouver, Canada, called Arsenal Pulp. And they fell in love with the book. They are giving it their full heart. And then we went and got blurbs from Bell Hooks and Claudia Rankin. So here we have two of the most important writers of our time, two straight black women endorsing my book that nobody would publish. Mm -hmm. So here we are again, back where I was with Gentrification of the Mind, you know, a book that got almost no reviews and has ended up selling thousands and thousands of thousands. I mean, this book is, you know, here it is seven years later, and it's still being written about, talked about. I mean, and this is going to be one of those. It's going to be a slow rollout because the apparatus will not be there to support it. But people, I think, will appreciate this book and engage it and talk about it. And it's just going to be the same kind of experience I've been having all my life, mm-hmm. where a book that no one will publish then comes to really matter. I wonder if if you have any thoughts about the phenomenon of self-publishing. Um, I, I know that I've put out two books self-published myself, mostly because I'm just too impatient to keep persisting, and I'm actually trying that with other things right now. But, you know, I, I think mm-hmm. that there there's an avenue for people that hasn't existed before. But, of course, that comes with certain perils in the form of anybody I ever say, oh, I self-published a book, they immediately roll their eyes and go, that's going to be garbage. And I understand why they feel like that. The worst books I've ever read have been self-published. But, of course, that doesn't mean that everything self-published is bad. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts about that phenomenon. I mean, in a way, I'm too old to self-publish. I think it's part of, you know, do-it-yourself culture, mm-hmm. and it's a generationally-based thing. Mm-hmm. And although I depend on the Internet for my books because that's where people find out about it mm-hmm. by hearing what other people they know have to say about the books, that's the main way that people get my books or... They see other people reading them in a cafe or something like that, the person-to-person thing. But, you know, there's, there's, I'm not sophisticated enough online. Like, there's certain forms of social media that I don't even understand exactly what they are. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just, that's probably why self-publishing would elude me. But there are a lot of terrible books that are published by big corporate presses, so sure. self-publishing isn't alone in that. Yeah. On your Facebook profile, you name Amy Goodman as your favorite American. Tell us why. I just love her and I trust her and I rely on her. 
and she thinks for herself and she gives voice to people who don't have voice. And I love her affect that she's just flat mm-hmm. in the, and she presents. It's not, it's not about her herself as a personality. And I'm just so grateful for her. Yeah. Whenever there's a crisis, I, I rely on her to find, understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I've been involved in East Timor activism for a long time. And as you may know, she was oh. present at the massacre in 1991. And, uh, yes, she's, with Alan Mann. Absolutely. Yes. So when I met her for the first time, I was shaking uncontrollably and just so delighted and grateful. And uh, yeah, it's, it's she's an incredible person, no doubt. Okay, so talking quickly about the BDS movement, um, why is this issue important to you now? Um, talk a little bit about sort of how it came onto your radar screen. Well, God, that's a long conversation, and I wrote a whole book explaining that, which is called Israel, Palestine, and the Queer International. But basically, I I wrote a book called Ties That Bind, Familial Homophobia and Its Consequences, which was the first analysis of homophobia in the family. And as a consequence, I was invited to Tel Aviv University to give a talk at their Lesbian and Gay Studies Conference. And I wanted to go because, of course, I wanted to talk about homophobia in the Jewish family. But a colleague of mine, who was a Turkish Jew, said, you can't go, don't you know there's a boycott? And I said, what boycott? I didn't know anything about it. So she said, well, you better find out. So I wrote to Naomi Klein and Judith Butler. And I asked them about it, and Naomi Klein never answered me. But Judith Butler got back to me in four hours and sent me all kinds of things to read. And after I did all my reading and all my research, I realized that I couldn't go because the because Palestinian civil society in 2005 started a movement asking internationals like myself to not endorse the status quo of Israeli cultural production and academic production, which in Israel, all universities are run by the state. And um, and that if I violated this boycott, it would be like crossing a picket line. Mm-hmm. And I, since I opposed the occupation, I understood that I had to decline the invitation. So I declined the invitation, and then it was suggested to me that I go on a solidarity visit, um, an Israeli lesbian named Dali Baum suggested that I come on my own dime to Israel and Palestine and speak in anti-occupation spaces and meet with people from the Palestinian queer movement, which I didn't know existed. Mm-hmm. And I also had an invitation to meet Omar Barghouti, who is the, one of the main leaders of the Palestine Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel in Ramallah in the West Bank. So I went, and it changed my life. Because the thing about the occupation is it's one of the few things in life that you're not prepared to witness. As much as I had read about it and as much as I had studied it, it was so much worse in person. I was really shocked, and um, I understood that I, it was my responsibility as an American whose tax dollars maintain this, to do what I could to support the boycott and try to end the occupation and certainly end U.S. support of the occupation. And so I've been doing what I can since then. 
so I wrote that book. I am faculty advisor to Students for Justice in Palestine at my school, the College of Staten Island. I'm on the advisory board of Jewish Voice for Peace, and I work on various projects here and there, um, trying to support different elements of those various societies that are trying to work to transform the occupation. And ironically, this year, I was accused of anti-Semitism and called in by the City University Task Force on Anti-Semitism to account for my actions. And when I was telling a friend of mine I was accused of anti-Semitism, she said, against two, <laughs> because it's so absurd, it's mm. ridiculous. Right. But what happened was that there, actually there is a, there's a McCarthyite movement in the U.S. It's mostly aimed at Arab professors, people like Stephen Salida, who's a Palestinian professor who was hired with tenure at the University of Illinois and then was fired, even though he had tenure, because of his personal tweets about the war, the Gaza war. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is rare that Jews like myself uh, come up under this kind of this, this um, pressure. But my students, who are mostly Palestinian and mostly religious, so it's women in hijab for the most part, and whose families are deeply involved involved in Palestinian politics, they're falsely accused by the New York Post of drawing swastikas on the wall of our school. Hmm. So I called the Post reporter, and I asked him if he had fact-checked this, because there was no incident report at my school of anyone drawing any swastikas anywhere, and no one, even the president of the school, had even heard of this. Hmm. So it seemed like a Reichstag kind of event, you know, a non-event. And the reporter told me that, you know, he had never fact-checked this. So the next day, he ran an article in the Post called Jew Haters at CUNY. And he quotes me denying that that this incident occurred, but he doesn't mention that it, in fact, (laughs) did not occur. So it looks like I'm denying something. And then this started a whole series of things. Um, The Daily News ran my picture saying I had been accused of anti-Semitism. No one had accused me of anti-Semitism. They were accusing me. (laughs) So the whole thing was fabricated. And, of course, I'm a New Yorker, so everyone saw that picture, my mother, my dentist. And then they ran it in the Staten Island newspaper where I work, so all my students and the people who work in my school. Um, It was really scary. And then the the forces that come after you when you oppose the Israeli state came after me, and they went into my Wikipedia page, and they added a line saying that I had gone to Gaza as a guest of Hamas, which is absurd. I've never been to Gaza, and I have nothing to do with Hamas. Then I received, then they took a screenshot of that. Then I received an anonymous email telling me to check my Wikipedia so I checked it and saw that that had been added. I deleted it. And then they circulated the screenshot claiming that I was hiding, wow. that I had gone to Gaza as a guest of Hamas. Sorry, as, mean, a, as, type as, of, as a Wikipedia, I'm sorry to interrupt. As a Wikipedian, I'm just curious to know, did they have any kind of source attached to that statement? Or was it? Something? I don't know. Oh, no. And then they started tweeting to the chancellor of the city university. Why is this terrorist Nazi teaching at CUNY? Then the Cosmopolitans came out, and every time someone was reviewing it, they would tweet the review, and these people would tweet back at them, 
why are you supporting this terrorist Nazi? Or she would put her own grandmother on a boxcar. Mm. I mean, and they were doing this 10 to 50 times a day. Wow. And then I got a letter from CUNY asking me to come before the CUNY Task Force on Anti-Semitism. Now, there's no CUNY Task Force on Racism, mm. and there's no CUNY Task Force on Islamophobia. Right. And this task force was being directed by a corporate lawyer who his history was that he defends Hasidic men accused of sexual abuse. He defended New York NYPD who had killed a black child and he defended Dominique Strauss-Kahn. Oh, wow. (laughs) So I was terrified. I talked to my union and they informed me that the Israeli government has gotten the U.S. Department of Defense to adopt a definition of anti-Semitism that includes criticizing Israel, Israeli mm. policy. And that if CUNY adopted that definition, I would then be guilty of hate speech. As would a lot of And them. this could, yes, and this could trip the moral turpitude clause of my tenure. So, of course, I became terrified because this is a completely McCarthyite apparatus, right? Nothing had occurred. No one had sprayed swastikas. No one had accused me of anti-Semitism. The entire thing was fabricated. But it's because there's trustees in CUNY who represent the interests of the Israeli state. You, re- you may remember they were the same people who tried to deny an deg- honorary degree to Tony Kushner some years ago. Mm-hmm. So I went, I called the Jewish Voice for Peace, and they got me a lawyer, a wonderful lawyer, Jethro Eisenstein, who's a Jewish labor lawyer. And we went uh, before this board, and they had 14 pages of charges. But I was not named in any of the charges. It was all about my students. Mm. And the charges were extremely vaguely stated. Mm-hmm. It would be like, a Muslim student made a Jewish student feel bad. A Muslim student said something bad about a Jewish student. You know, these types of things with no names, no dates, nothing. Right. And what I saw was that because of the racism of the people who had constructed this whole thing, they conflated Muslim students with students who belong to Students for Justice in Palestine. It's not Mm -hmm. the same group. Mm -hmm. So I explained to the panel that there are 20% of our students at the College of Staten Island are Muslim students, but there's only about 30 people in Students for Justice in Palestine. And in their charges, they had conflated these two discrete categories, and so therefore, the charges didn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And as far as I know, I believe it's all been dropped, although the report has not been issued yet. So, you know, I came through it unscathed, but it was really terrifying because it was a little uh, rehearsal for what can come. Perhaps you could get some counsel from Noam Chomsky or Norm Finkelstein about dealing with this sort of backlash. Yeah, I was looking at the Department of Defense website. Um, it, it has the def- working definition by the European Monitoring Center on Racism and Xenophobia. And then it says there's a bullet list, contemporary examples of anti-Semitism. And it says um, accusing uh, yeah, Jews uh, as a people of being responsible for real or imagined wrongdoing committed by a single Jewish person or group, the state of Israel, or even for acts committed by non-Jews. Which right. is, that's shocking. But I shouldn't be shocked, I guess, you know. The Department of Defense uh, has an interesting history of defining Well, today the Israeli government announced today that they're banning people and deporting people who support the boycott. Mm. So that, you know, internationals who want to go to Israel-Palestine either to witness or to their friends will will be officially banned. Mm. 
You recently helped found the ACT UP Oral History Project. Uh, for those who don't know, what is ACT UP and why was the Oral History Project necessary? I read an interview where you talked about a story you heard on NPR. I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. So ACT UP was the uh, AIDS activist movement. It was an organization called the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. It was founded in February of 1986. I joined it in July of 1987. Um, AIDS, although AIDS has existed as as we definitely know as far back as the 1940s and possibly earlier, it wasn't identified by science until it hit a group of upper-class white gay men. And then it was identified in 1981. It was originally called GRID, Gay-Related Immune Deficiency. And in the first five years of the AIDS crisis, 40,000 people in the United States died of AIDS. And there was no government response. In fact, Ronald Reagan famously never said the word AIDS. So since the government was not responding, and pharmaceutical companies were simply recycling failed cancer drugs to which they owned the patent, and no, no good research was being done, and, and a direct action activist movement had to be formed. So ACT UP basically is responsible for transforming the AIDS crisis on many, many levels. They worked in many arenas, everything from needle exchange to housing for people with AIDS to getting insurance for people with AIDS to, to and most importantly, getting new drugs studied and released. Um, but by 1996, when the protease inhibitor drugs became available, the people stopped dying in massive numbers um, and basically, people who had access to insurance were able to get medications, and that's a big um, if, if you had insurance. Mm -hmm. At that point, the movement kind of dismantled. I mean, it still exists, but it, it diminished. And people kind of went off to lick their wounds and try to restart their lives. And by 2001, people had forgotten about ACT UP. It had never been historicized. And one day, I was actually in L.A. trying to get a TV job and riding my little rent, white rental car. And NPR had a, a program because it was the 20th anniversary of AIDS. And the announcer said, at first America had trouble with people with AIDS, but then they came around. <laughs> and they like almost crashed the car because that's not what happened. It was a false story about some kind of naturalized progress mm. in which people with power become somehow automatically enlightened. Actually, what happened was that thousands of people fought until the day they died to force the society to change against its will. So I called my collaborator, Jim Hubbard. We had founded the um, New York Experimental Film Festival, which still exists. It's called Mix, and it's in its 30th year now. And we decided to start the ACT UP Oral History Project. And in the subsequent 15 years, I conducted 187 long-form interviews with surviving members of ACT UP New York, which is available for free online at actuporalhistory.org. You can watch five minutes of the sample video of each interview, and you can download the transcripts of the entire interview for free. And hundreds of thousands of people have downloaded those transcripts. And then we took those interviews, and Jim used... Um, archival footage that he had preserved, about a thousand hours that he had made available, 
and he directed and we co-produced a feature film, United in Anger, History of Act Up, which has played all over the world and it's available on, on iTunes. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for the discussion and for all that work. Um, I, I'd like to talk about Rent and Stage Struck, but I spent a long time trying to figure out what question I might ask. I feel like it's all in the book. You know, Stage Struck kind of changed my life in some ways. I had never seen Rent to this. I actually still haven't seen it. Um, I still haven't read People in Trouble, I'm ashamed to say. Um, but after I read Stage Struck in basically one sitting, I went out and got after Dolores. And every time I have a student who comes through my classroom who loves Rent, and I always have one each semester at least, I, I say, oh, if you like Rent, you really ought to read Stage Struck. You know, there's a great story to be told, and you ought to learn the truth about where Rent came from. Um, and, and, and students sometimes will say, like, oh, maybe, you know, and then they never do. Um, I wonder if you could say anything about that experience, looking back on it now, or what you may have learned as a writer after all of that. I don't know. I recently, I, I recently watched the film of Rent for the first time, and it was so absurd. Mm-hmm. You know, it it has nothing to do with AIDS. It has nothing to do with the AIDS experience. Uh, there's just such a gap in commercially successful work about AIDS and what the AIDS experience actually was. And, you know, by making United in Anger, we were trying to at least make available some of the reality. But it's it's a, it's an uphill battle because there's this desire to make straight people the heroes of AIDS. And you see it everywhere, even in Angels in America, and you see it in Philadelphia, and you see it in Rent. And actually, straight people abandon people with AIDS. And that's the, the story that's so hard to tell on a dominant cultural level. So, you know, it's deep. It's really deep. And then, um, the sort of a follow-up to that, uh, I recall an interview long ago, I think it was with the Progressive Magazine, but I can't be sure, you, you pointed out that the people who fight for social change often benefit the least when it finally comes, and you use the status of drag mm-hmm. queens at Stonewall at the time as proof that, um, you know, they're proof of that has that specific situation improved at all or does it remain stagnant do you do you believe that um... well that was a comment that donald suggs who's since passed away but he was a black gay activist he said that to me on the street one day he mm-hmm. said the people who started stonewall are no better off than they were then right. but they made the world safe for gay republicans <laughs> And, you know, it's interesting. Next week, I'm going to be teaching an intensive writing workshop in Brooklyn for trans women only. I was approached to teach this because a friend of mine, Bryn Kelly, killed herself last January. And I gave the eulogy at her funeral. She was a trans woman artist. And about 700 people came to that funeral. And afterwards, um, I think that that changed my relationship to the trans to certain some people hated my eulogy and some people appreciated it but I was asked to teach this class um, based on the idea that trans women who do go into writing groups end up having to explain themselves and they don't have an environment where they can are given the same opportunity to learn as everybody else Mm. And so I said, sure, I'd be happy to teach this. And then 43 women signed up for it. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, so obviously there was a great need. And so obviously I can't teach a workshop with 43 people. So um, Casey Plett, who is a 
Lambda award-winning trans woman writer is dividing it with me. I think she's taking the beginning group and I'm taking the advanced group. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be doing that next week. So, you know, here's um, a community that doesn't have a lot of in-person experience. I mean, it's like, it's a, it's a strange thing for me to say, because in my generation, we all met in person. Mm-hmm. You know, ACT UP was 700 people in a room. But the trans women community is really constituted more online. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people have never been in class since they finished school Mm -hmm. because the classroom is a hostile place. Mm -hmm. So this is is going to be next week, um, and I'm really looking forward to it. And I know it's going to be challenging, but I really want to serve these students and give them, you know, the same opportunity that everybody else has to develop as writers interactively in person. I have a banner in my classroom that says writing liberates and I make that sort of a core message of everything I teach. I wonder if you might talk a little bit about the power of writing to liberate and also what some of the potential limits of that liberatory power of writing are. Well, let's see. It's a complex question. I mean, I think the the age of the book that changes the world is in the past mm-hmm. because of the new technologies. And being a writer is not enough. You also have to be a person working with other people because social change gets made by groups of people coming together and acting efficiently. It doesn't get made by one person just doing whatever they feel like doing, which for a writer is writing a book. So, yeah, it can be be exciting and transformative for a person to express themselves and even more importantly to communicate. And, of course, writing is not just expression, right? You need craft to be able to make what your expression be useful to the reader. But ultimately, social change requires human beings working together and speaking together in person. Um, and it's not just an individual effort. Just another real quick thing about creative writing. You know, I teach to high schoolers. You teach college students. What would you like to tell, or what do you tell aspiring young writers? What advice, or perhaps call to arms, would you offer to LGBTQ teenagers? Well, I think, I mean, you can be an aspiring writer at any age, but Mm -hmm. the most important thing is to know that writing is not a profession. Do not expect to make your living by being a writer. I mean, there are a few who do, but they're very, very, very few. Uh, if you, you, you need to have a job that you can support yourself on and that's not soul-killing, something that you enjoy, but that should be separate from your writing because if you give your writing the responsibility and burden of supporting you financially, then you're not free to write the things that you want to write. You know, you become trapped in a kind of repetition or having to pander in a certain level. So you, that's the most important thing is to separate those two uh, actions in your life and, and not confuse them. And then you'll have a much more, uh, you'll have a happier life and a more, and a, and a more satisfying writing life. Mm-hmm. And any advice or call to arms to LGBTQ teenagers? Teenagers. I don't really know because, like I said, I think LGBT is a false category, and depending on who those teenagers are, they have they're in, they're in really different situations. Right. So no, I, w- I would say no. Okay. I don't really have anything to say there. Sure. Um, 
Well, that's everything I had. Is there any? Are there any questions that wow. you kind of wish that somebody would have asked you at some point? <laughs> Stephen King and his no, own writing. No, you're incredible. I appreciate you put so much effort into this, and oh, thank you. It's, uh, so kind of you. I'm oh, very, very grateful, and thank you. It's been fun. Well, thank you very much. Like I said, I I feel incredibly honored to be able to talk to you for so long, and I uh, I hope that people enjoy this interview as well. Okay, thank you. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.